for a while that I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts. We started our study of this book in May of last year, and uh, this is number 60 in the hit list of our website of messages from this book. We have, we're going to finish this, Lord willing, this morning. So this is the story, you'll remember, of how Jesus' earliest followers, this sequel to the Gospel of Luke, how Jesus' earliest followers fulfilled his commission to them, the mission he gave to them that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they would be witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, let's read. We're going to read from Acts 28, verse 17, verses 17 through the end. This is what the scripture says. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. Paul's made it to Rome. He's finally made it to Rome. And after he gets there, he calls them together. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not need tend to bring... I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we've not received any letters from Judah concerning you, and none of our people who have have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, Christianity. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through the Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will ever be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For, perceiving. for this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The lights are dim a little bit. I'm going to fix them. All right. I turned 40 a couple years ago. I need the bright lights. Well, uh, one of my favorite things about the turkey bowl that we do every year on Thanksgiving morning is we uh, is seeing people from our congregation invite friends to come and play. Some of them call their high school buddies or some sports team or some club or they get their coworkers and they come and compete. And it's, it's fun to watch that happen. Well, if you have friends like that who are into athletic competitions, I heard about a new uh, series of races that you might be interested in. It's relatively new. It's called the Ragnar Relay Series. I wonder if you've heard of this. Well, 
The Ragnar Relay Series is a group of races that takes place all across the country. You can sign up and participate almost anywhere. Each competition is a 200-mile, two-day event. Uh, Get 11 of your closest friends and two cars. And uh, all 12 of you will run in this race, this relay race, segments of between three to eight miles uh, and uh, varying levels of difficulty in the three to eight miles. And everybody, you always run in the same order uh, through the race. And your team is constantly moving all night, all day, all day to complete this 200-mile race. I think one of them that they've done in years past is from Gettysburg to Washington, D.C. So it's not that far away. Uh, I had not heard of it except the other day I was at a, in a parking lot and I saw somebody with a sticker on his car. He had all those um, uh, marathon stickers, you know, 26.2. He had a number of those. And then he had a Ragnar symbol on. He's done this. Or she has done this, the driver of this car. Now, at normal relay races, you use batons. You know what that's like. You, you pass the baton while you're running the relay race. In the Ragnar relay series, they use snap bracelets. Now, if it's been a while since you've been in third grade and you're not sure what a snap bracelet is, um, a snap bracelet is is a long, it's a thin piece of metal. It's shaped, if you stretch it out straight, it'll be rigid and it's it's a little um, curved. And if you take it and you snap it on your wrist, it will will wrap itself around with this very distinctive click sound. And... um, you can actually hear it if you watch the Ragnar Relay promos on their website. You can hear them pass. It's get that click as they pass their snap bracelets. Well, I want you to think about the Ragnar Relay series as we come to this last section of, of the book of Acts. It's an image worth having in your mind because these verses remind us that the gospel is a message that is carried and that moves. It's a message that keeps going and going and going. It's passed on and passed on and keeps going, despite some rather significant and serious obstacles. In fact, here's how I want to summarize this passage here that we're going to look at this morning. Here's how I would summarize these last verses. Even when people reject it and the messengers pass off the scene, the message, the gospel itself, moves. Even when people reject it and the messengers pass off the scene, the message itself keeps on moving. The gospel moves. It keeps going. We're going to look at all three of those pieces uh, individually. The first piece about rejection is intended to help us have a clear vision about why people don't turn to Jesus Christ. What's going on? And actually, this will help us answer one of the great tensions that we have seen already in the book of Acts. Now, the second piece about its passing messengers should help us have a clear vision about the role that you play in this drama that is in the book of Acts, in this command that Jesus gave. We're also going to think about why the book of Acts ends so, to some people, so dissatisfactorily. It's a dissatisfactory ending, some people think. We'll, We'll talk about why that is. And then third, we're going to talk about the message itself, and we'll think about what Luke has called us as a congregation, what we're supposed to be doing together. So let's start with with rejection here. Why do people reject the message? Now, when Paul Paul got to Rome, uh, without really taking any time off to recover from his shipwreck, he calls together the leaders of the synagogues in Rome. Now, uh, this uh, might seem odd at first. He would start here, but remember... 
This is the way Paul always operates. Whenever he goes to a new city, what does he do? He goes to the synagogue first, and he talks to the Jews there. It doesn't matter Paul's in chains. He's in a new city. This is how he operates. Why? Well, he believes that the gospel is for the Jew first. He said that in Romans. And then to the Gentiles. We'll talk about why that is in just a minute. But this is, this is what he does. He's proclaiming the Jewish Messiah to his fellow countrymen. And often, actually, when he would go to those synagogues, when he met God-fearing Gentiles who would be interested in hearing about Jesus the Messiah, well, that's what he does. And when they gather together, Paul covers some familiar territory. He kind of defends himself again. He's, he's innocent. He's been wrongly charged. And even though he, he could have done so, he has no interest in pressing charges against the Jews, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He could charge them with malicious prosecution. That's what he's making reference to in uh, verse 19. He says, I certainly did not intend to bring any charges against my own people, though I could have. Remember, Paul is innocent here. And there's some puzzles that come up in the, in the story, a couple of them. One of them is in verse 21 where it says, we haven't received any letters from Judea concerning you. <laughs> and you know what Paul did at that moment? He probably went, oh, good. I mean, it's puzzling, though. Why, why didn't the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, knowing that Paul is going to Rome, why didn't they warn the synagogue leaders in Rome about Paul? Why didn't they send him a letter? Hey, there's a guy, you've got to look out for him. That's strange. Unless, unless maybe the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have just kind of given up on their prosecution. They got Paul out of the way. He's gone. At least he's out of our area. He's somebody else's headache now, so we're not going to worry about that. Or they knew how much Felix and Festus, the Roman governors, thought Paul was innocent, and maybe they just gave up because they have no chance of getting Paul convicted because the governors are not even on their side. So there's that. Then in verse 22, there's this very strange... Um, we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, as if, as if they, they have heard about Christianity, but they don't really know anything about it, which is odd. How could they not know anything about it? They must have, but they don't seem to. Um, there were Jews from Rome in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, 30 years before these events, who, who heard the gospel, heard about Jesus, and the church in Rome is old. So how is it? that these Jewish leaders don't know anything about Christianity except that people speak against it and that maybe they should look out for Paul. How, how, do, they, how do they know that? How do they not know that? Well, I have a theory, I have a scenario. It's not original to me. Uh, do you remember about 10 years before Acts 28, Claudius the emperor had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. It's how Paul met Aquila and Priscilla in Acts 18. They were in Corinth because they'd been kicked out of Rome. Suetonius, the Roman historian, tells us that the reason Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome is because there was a riot following, uh, people were following a man by the name of Crestus, and he was causing riots. Some people think that Suetonius was confused, and he thought that the living, a living person named Crestus was leading these revolts. And maybe actually what was happening is that the Jews in Rome were fighting about the identity of Jesus Christ. And that, that Claudius had just kicked the Jews out. Stop fighting about this person you claim to be the Messiah. Some of you do, some of you don't. Just get out. Maybe what happened is these Roman synagogue leaders are the remnants. They're the ones who've come back after they were allowed. 
And, and while they were gone, the church there had become very Gentile. So they didn't want to have any contact with them. And, and they just very... They stayed by themselves in their own quiet little section. Maybe that's what's happening. I'm not sure. Regardless, Paul makes to them a defense of, of the gospel. He preaches to them. Verse 23, he says... They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning... Oh, witness, there's a, a good word, right? From Acts eight. you shall be my witnesses. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets he tried to persuade them about Jesus. He preaches about the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom's not a prominent theme in the book of Acts, but it just shows up every now and then at the beginning, actually, and at the end. Do you remember in Acts 1-6, the, they, the disciples had said to the risen Christ before he ascended, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I think when they asked that question, they were thinking of a very literal, physical kingdom. Jesus, now that you've died and rose from the dead, are you now going to sit on the throne that David did in Jerusalem and push the Romans out and we're going to have a free and independent Israel? Is that what you're going to do now? Is now the time that the kingdom is going to come? That's one of the ways that the Bible uses the word kingdom. Is that what Paul's talking about here? Or is Paul perhaps talking about the universal, sovereign, spiritual reign of God? That's possible. I think, uh, actually, the place where the kingdom plays the biggest role in the book of Acts is in the, the, the apostles' preaching. Oh, I love that line Peter says in, in uh, one of his sermons early in Acts. He says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. That's an awesome way to end a sermon. Uh, that's not how this one's going to end right now, though, so don't get your hopes up. So, but uh, 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 I'm not sure what, the, what kingdom he has in mind particular. I think it's often literal. It doesn't matter, but at, at the center of it is Jesus. Jesus is at the, kingdom, uh, at the center of God's plans, all of God's plans. And what Paul has done here is he's taken the description of the Messiah in the Old Testament, the prophets, Moses, and he has talked about the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and he has put the two together and said, see how they match? See how Jesus fulfills all of the requirements of the Messiah? How, how he is at the center of all of God's plans? They're not convinced. Not convinced at all. There's some disagreement which leads to indecision. And Paul's final words in verse 25 are sharp and biting he quotes the Holy Spirit who spoke through Isaiah the prophet. He described the Israelites of his day, but actually he's describing you, you people, he says to these, these Jewish leaders. Look at verse 26. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn. I would heal them. And now we come here directly to the issue of rejection. Why do people reject the gospel? Well, Isaiah references three different um, um, organs of receiving information. They have eyes, they have ears, they have hearts. They have closed eyes stopped up hearts, ears, 
and hard hearts. There's a sense in which they see and a sense in which they don't see. There's a sense in which they hear, but they actually don't really hear. (laughs) I don't want to admit this, really, but there are times in my life where my wife says to me, can you hear me? And I say, yes. And what I mean is, I see your lips moving, and I know that there is sound coming out of your mouth, but I'm not really listening to you. I'm not really hearing. Uh, There's a scientific reason for this. (laughs) At least in the, the headline that I read yesterday online, there is a scientific reason for this. It's kind of related to why when you're lost and trying to find where you're going, you turn the radio down. What does that have to do with finding where you are? But everybody in this room does it. There's a sense in which they see and don't. There's a sense in which they hear but don't. There's a sense in which their heart understands but not. This is the profound issue, a profound issue in the New Testament. Uh, This passage from Isaiah 6 is one of the most cited passages in the New Testament. It describes the majority Jewish response to Jesus. It's an issue worth thinking about, and I'll tell you why it is this morning. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He, is, he came as fulfillment, the fulfillment of promises made in the Hebrew Bible. He was born in the Jewish homeland, uh, was crucified outside the Jewish capital, and his early and most prominent followers were all Jews. At the beginning of Luke, Zacharias rejoices. He says, God has come to us to redeem us and rescue us. And uh, John read from Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, the people walking in darkness. Who are those? Jews living in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. But at the end of Acts, it's, it is Jews who en masse together reject Jesus. What happened? More pointedly, what happened to God's promises? How can it be that God's own people would reject his Messiah? How is this in any sense of fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abraham and Moses and David? If God's promises fail here, if he doesn't keep his word to his people, how is it that we can trust any of the rest of the Old Testament? Is he trustworthy at all if his promises to Israel don't come true? What's going on in this rejection? Well, John Stott points out that these verses in the New Testament seem to be used in slightly different ways, uh, not just in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament too. And, and, and the emphasis, the agency of unbelief is different, slightly different. So in Isaiah, and maybe in these, where these passages are quoted in Matthew and Mark, the emphasis is on the prophet himself. The agency of their unbelief is the prophet He shows up and he reveals the people to be hard-hearted, not seeing, not hearing people. They maybe not didn't really know what they felt or what they thought about something until the prophet comes and he forces them into a corner and they respond negatively. Um, Here's an illustration of this perhaps. Um, I don't really have strong opinions about okra, you know, the vegetable okra. Um, when we lived in the South, you could get a lot of fried okra, a lot of places. And I ate some fried okra, and I, fried okra is okay. I eat it probably once every five years here. Uh, but I have heard, though, that when okra is steamed, it is slimy. I believe that. If you serve me slimy okra, and you force it in front of me, my heart may become calloused. 
I may see with my eyes but not see, and hear with my ears but not hear, and taste with my tongue but not taste. So, so you might be the agent of my rejection of the fine vegetable okra. Like Isaiah, maybe Jesus, as it's used in Matthew and Mark, is, is, is the agent of their unbelief. Now, in John chapter 12, I wrote that passage down that we're going to look at in just a minute. Uh, the hardening here seems to be God himself. The agent of their unbelief is God himself. Look at John chapter 12, verse 37. Here's what it says. I think I wrote it down. Did I write it down for you? I meant to if I didn't. It's on the back of the blue sheet. There it is. Good. John 12:37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. God himself, like he did with Pharaoh, hardening hearts. This hardening is actually a form of judgment. It's a response to their repeated rejection of Jesus and the prophets. Now, I want to go on a tangent for a little bit this morning and think about what possible reason could God have for doing this for? What, how in this world can this work as part of God's plan here? That he would be an agent of hardening. Well... Paul picks this theme up again in the book of Romans. And I want you to turn with me over to Romans, if you would, for just a couple minutes. And I want to look at a couple key verses in two of the most difficult, challenging chapters in the Bible. Romans 9, 10, 11, and 11. They're actually not hard to understand. They're hard to appreciate sometimes. All right? So Romans chapter 9. Actually, before we get to Romans 9, look at Romans 10, 16. Romans 10, 16. Now, Romans, of course, is one book to the right of Acts, so it should not be very hard to find. Just a few pages to the right. Look at uh, Romans 10, 16. It says, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Oh, there's a quote from uh, Isaiah again about the Israelite unbelief. Uh, a, a verse that was quoted. We just read that from John 12. Well, look over at Romans chapter 9, verse 1. All right, Romans 9, verse 1. Uh, it says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, race the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed. Really? Why not? Why hasn't God's word failed? Flip over with me to chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify them about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. 
Now here's one piece of the problem. The Jews that Paul is talking about here are the quintessential example of someone who's trying to, I'll use this phrase, get to heaven or try to earn God's favor by being good. That's what he means by establishing their own righteousness. The gospel message is offensive. It's offensive, many of the things that are in this book. Uh, A few weeks ago, perhaps you've heard about this, the Church of England produced a 60-second commercial. It was a uh, 60-second commercial made to show at the premiere of the new Star Wars movie, which happens in just a few days. And uh, the Church of England was trying to encourage people who went to the movie in Great Britain to pray. So it is 60 seconds of the Lord's Prayer. It's a montage of people from various walks of life, various ages and stages, just quoting the Lord's Prayer. And the government censors objected, saying that the Lord's Prayer is too offensive to show in a movie theater. And in a sense, they're actually right. They're absolutely right about it. It is offensive to claim that someone else's name, someone else's um, kingdom, someone else's will is superior to your own. It's, it's offensive to say to someone, you need forgiveness. It's offensive to say to someone, you are dependent upon someone else for their daily bread. It's offensive to tell people that they're sinners, that they fall short of God's Standards. It challenges your identity, your, your self-determination, your self-esteem. You can't meet God's standards. Now, it's interesting. You should be used to this sort of thinking. It shouldn't be completely unusual to you because you live by someone's standards, and I bet you don't meet them. You don't meet the standards of um, Pinterest, Right? You find all these beautiful crafts and all these people who are able to decorate their homes for $37 and you can't do it. And you don't meet those standards. You don't meet the standards of uh, uh, magazine covers when you are grocery shopping and you see that plain housewife from Boise, Idaho who in the last six weeks has lost 150 pounds, right? You don't meet those standards either. You don't meet the standards. Hmm, you don't meet the standards of your parents. You, you still hear your dad. Your dad's been dead for 25 years, and you still hear him say, "You're not living up to your potential." Right? Uh, you don't meet uh, the, the standards of uh, the, the Facebook friends who are always so happy in all of their pictures, and nothing's ever wrong with them. Right? It's not your life. You don't meet that that standard. You don't meet your own standards either, do you? This is your problem with your own pride. It's the problem with self-esteem. You just are not as good as you think you should be. It makes you angry with yourself. It should not surprise you to hear me say, you don't meet God's standards. You, You can't live up to... But unlike Pinterest and magazine covers and your dad and Facebook... God actually has done something about the fact that you don't meet his standards. Oh, that's the good news that we proclaim as followers of Jesus, isn't it? Well, this is the problem the Israelites are are having here. Uh, their, Their rejection of Jesus, this hardening. Now look down with me here 
at, at, Luke, uh, at Romans 11, verse 25. I want to go to Romans 11:25. Here's a mystery. This hardening is a mystery, uh, something strange. Uh, Romans 11:25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited, may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening. Oh, there's that word. In part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Oh, this is, this is a mystery. This is strange. This is wonderful. Here's God's plans, mysterious and strange. Jesus has come. He has been rejected by the Jews. And in consequence, the gospel has been preached to the Gentiles. Paul said that, right? In Acts 28, we read this. Don't you know the, the, that um, uh, the Gentiles will hear and listen the gospel has been preached to Gentiles, and oh, I'm so glad it has been, because that's where I am. But someday, someday, he says, there's going to be a repentance, a turning, a repentance among the Jews, and he says, all Israel will be saved. And then what will happen? Oh, look back at verse 11 and 12 of Romans 11. Okay, we're going to go back one more verse, one more time, one more passage I want to read. Romans 11, 11 and 12. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, the Jewish rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression of Israel means riches for the world, and what a blessing it is, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Follow me here. This is how the hardening of the hearts of Israel works itself out in God's plans. They turned against Jesus. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. This is great blessing. Someday there's going to be a glad reception on the part of the Jews to welcome and acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, and that will be a tremendous blessing for the whole world. Oh, this is marvelous plans that God has. When uh, J.M. Barry created his character Peter Pan, I don't think he had any idea how much that story would weave itself into our culture. It's been made into how many movies, how many different versions and stories. Well, in uh, 1991, Robin Williams starred in a version of, of the story called Hook. Maybe some of you saw it. Well, uh, in this story, uh, Peter Pan wanted to, have, wanted to be a father. He had this great desire to be a father. So he left Neverland and ended up marrying Wendy's granddaughter, the original granddaughter from the story. He married her, he grew up, he had children, he entered the business world, and in time he forgot all about Neverland and the Lost Boys and Peter, being Peter Pan. Until one night, Captain Hook came and kidnapped his children and took them to Neverland. Well, Peter Pan ends up back in Neverland himself, where in order for him to rescue his children, he has to convince himself and he has to convince the Lost Boys that he really is Peter Pan. The Lost Boys are very confused when Peter Pan shows up, Robin Williams. He's nothing like they thought he would look like. He's not the same person. He's old and fat and has glasses and a suit on. That is not Peter Pan. They're very confused. The most, uh, and, and, he, and he can't fly. That's the worst thing. He can't even fly. The most skeptical of the Lost Boys, uh, some of them, some of them see Peter there, there. The most skeptical is a man by the name of Rufio. Rufio, man, he's a little boy. 
Rufio is now the leader of the Lost Boys. He was Peter's best friend, and when Peter left, Rufio came, became in charge. In fact, Peter had entrusted his sword to Rufio, so Rufio's got Peter's sword. Well, imagine, imagine if this is really Peter Pan, what this means for Rufio, what a threat this is to him. Well, on the one hand, he's probably angry and disappointed that his friend left him, and he's been in charge It's a threat to his position, his authority among the lost boys. Well, there comes that moment. comes that moment when Peter Pan finally, with a little pixie dust and his happy thought, flies. This is what totally does it for Rufio. This convinces Rufio. He bows down to Peter. He he gives him his sword. And everyone then is convinced too. Because if you win Rufio, you get all the lost boys. The gospel has spread all the way around the world and Paul wants you to understand that when the Jews themselves turn to Jesus, oh, what that will mean. (laughs) What that will mean. So the agent of this hardening that we see in Acts chapter 28, we'll go back there now, is sometimes a prophet, sometimes it is God himself as an act of judgment, an expression of his divine will and divine planning. Here in Acts 28, though, I actually think that the emphasis is not on the prophet, not on God himself. I think the emphasis here in Acts 28 is on the people themselves, their rejection. They are committing spiritual suicide. Why do people reject the gospel? The Bible says all three, all three agents may be at play at various points in time. We hold all three of those intentions. But the last one here, the people themselves, is in this passage. We should think about it together. We have considered over and over again as we've been looking through the book of Acts this grand invitation of the book of Acts. It's a, this is a book about the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has set aside his divine glory and has become human. He became one of us. He lived a perfect life. He met, he met all of the standards that God had perfectly. That's the life that we should have lived. That's the life that you should live. And then, though, he died a sinner's death. The death that we deserve is a death consumed by the wrath of God. But he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at God's right hand. And he welcomes anyone to come to him by faith to receive forgiveness in life. That's the message of the book of Acts. It's what the apostles were preaching over and over and over again. Do you remember when, when Jesus called Paul, he said, I'm going to go to send you to open people's eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they can receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. If you have been here, you have heard this story in our church over and over and over and over again. Oh, that you would not turn from it because you're obstinate, because you're hard-hearted, because your heart is Calloused. Chapter 20, do you remember Paul was speaking in chapter 20 to the elders in Ephesus and he said, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I am innocent, I have told you everything. I don't know any preacher who would stand up and say that to his congregation. This is an apostle after all. But the point of that passage is that there comes a point in time where it's not 
It's not the preacher's fault. There's a point in time where your, own, your unbelief becomes your own responsibility. I'm not sure how long ago it was that I, I mentioned this to you. I think it was pretty recently. Uh, do you remember what Charles Spurgeon said about his mother and what she used to do? See, on, on Sunday nights, uh, Charles Spurgeon's dad was a pastor, his grandfather was a pastor, and they would have Sunday evening services. When they were very young, uh, they wouldn't go. His mother would stay home with them, and instead of watching 60 Minutes, she did something else. Listen, I'll tell you what she said, uh, what Charles Spurgeon said. I cannot tell how much I owe to the solemn words of my own good mother. It was the custom on Sunday evenings while we were yet little children for her to stay at home with us and then we sat round the table and read verse by verse and she explained the scriptures to us. After that was done, then came the time of pleading. Her mother did. There was a little piece of, and he quotes from two books that were well-known um, uh, books uh, calling uh, unbelievers to believe. She would read them to them. And this was read with pointed observations made to each of us as we sat round the table and the question was asked of us how long it would be before we would think about our state, how long before we would seek the Lord. Then came a mother's prayer and some of the words of that prayer we shall never forget even when our hair is gray. I remember on one occasion her praying thus. This is her mother praying in front of her little children. Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. That thought of a mother's bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. Will it be that I stand and bear witness against you the elders of our congregation standing and bearing swift witness against you? What about your own parents? Will they stand and bear swift witness against you because you have not believed? Some of you think you just know everything. You've got it down. You don't need help. But this is the word of the God who made you, who knows all things, and you reject his son at your everlasting loss. This book does end on, on somewhat of a sober note of rejection. As Paul says, your hard-heartedness, you will refuse to turn and believe. There's more here in this passage. That is, that is not the, the very end of it. There's these last two verses here. Well, they're much more hopeful. L let's think about them this morning. The, 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 first one, the first thing I want to think about here is the messenger. L look what happens, what happens to the messenger here, verses 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, I wonder what you think about the ending of this book. <laughs> if Acts is a biography of Paul, this is a terrible ending. If it's a crime thriller about what happened to Paul's trial, it's also a terrible ending because there's no resolution. We come to the last verse and Paul's in prison and you turn the page and you say, what happened? Where did he go? Well... 
Most New Testament scholars think that Paul was here in prison for two years, and after two years he was released, and he traveled and preached and may have gone to Spain like he wanted to. He wrote First Timothy and Titus. Eventually the story is that he was rearrested um, by the Romans. He was imprisoned. He wrote Second Timothy, and then he was executed under Nero. But why aren't those details here in this text? Why doesn't it say that here? We, we put those pieces together based on what Paul wrote in First and Second Timothy, uh, Second Timothy uh, and Titus. Why, why are those details not here in this book? Well, some people think that, that Luke wrote this book before those events happened, that, that when Luke finished Acts, that that's where Paul was. That doesn't seem right based on our understanding of when the Gospels and Acts were written. Paul, some people think that Luke didn't want to write about Paul's death because they didn't want people to be discouraged by his martyrdom. But you've read the rest of the book of Acts. Do you think Luke is discouraged about writing about suffering? No, no, no. I think that Paul's story ends the way it is here because the book is not about Paul. The book is about the message. The messengers are not the stars of the book. Paul's just a servant. He's just a steward. He ran the race. He carried the baton for a bit. It's made it all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. Amazing. It's gone this far, and now the book's over because the star of the story is the message, not the messengers. If you're wise, you will see everyone this way, including yourself. My tenure at Grace has lasted 16 years thus far. So I, and I follow my predecessor, Herb Samarth was here for 23 years, and Bob Smith was there for two. It is, it's rare for a church to be on its second pastor and to be 41 years old. That's, that's kind of rare. I, I talked to a friend not too long ago, uh, and just someone actually I met for the first time, and he, he said that he was, when he was in pastoral ministry, he was the 145th pastor of his 178-year-old church. That's <laughs> quite a bit of turnover there. Hmm. Someday I'm not going to be here either, but it's going to be fine. It's not a problem at all. Why? Because it's not the pastors of the church who sustain the church. It's the gospel that sustains the church. It's always the gospel. Now, that's what we're going to finish with as we come to the conclusion of this book. I want you to see here that the message itself moves. The message itself moves. The last word of the book of Acts in my translation of the New Testament is is the word hindrance. Without hindrance, the gospel moves. The hindrance, that means there was no interference from Rome. No one tried to stop Paul. No one tried to contradict Paul. The message just moved. Boldness is mentioned here too. That's what Paul wanted. Pray for me that I would have boldness. That's what all the apostles wanted. But, But the gospel moves without hindrance. It grows and spreads. Even with Paul in prison, the gospel moves. It's already moved from Jerusalem to Rome. It's keeping going. That's the way it is. We have no record of it in the book of Acts, do we? But we can tell the story. We know it. The gospel, the gospel has moved into South Africa. The gospel has moved into Asia. The gospel moved to Europe. The gospel moved to South America. The gospel moved to North America. It moves. And the messengers who took the gospel there are dead and gone, and the message still moves. One of my heroes is uh, Hudson Taylor. He took the gospel to China. He died there in 1905 and was buried next to his wife and uh, some of the children that had predeceased them both. 
uh, his tombstone, you can't go visit it in China because during the Cultural Revolution, they paved over it and then built an industrial building. And yet, there are about 150 million Chinese believers in Taylor's gospel. He's gone. You can't visit his grave. But the word he preached is living and racing through that land. If you're reading this book and you come to this last page, if you're reading it well, you have to ask yourself about your place in this story. We've got the gospel. We're on the course. We're setting the pace. The gospel is in our hands now, and, and, and we are equipped by God with his word and his spirit to pass it on and to pass it on and to pass it on. How are you doing in that? Last September, the New York Post printed an article about a, a mailman. His name was Joseph Brucato. He was not the most industrial employee of the United States Postal Service. In fact, in order to, not deli- in order to uh, get off of working hard, uh, Brucato kept the mail. He hoarded it in his house. Investigators entered his home and they found in it 40,000 pieces of first-class priority and regular mail, two and a half tons of mail. So they arrested Brucato. He's uh, going to go to jail for a long time. Don't hoard the message. Don't hoard the message. God sent Peter. He sent Stephen. He sent Philip. He sent James. He sent Lydia. He sent Aquila. He sent Priscilla. He sent all these people we have named. They're, they're names we know and names we don't know in this book. And now he has sent You, he has sent us. Let's run. Pray with me, would you please? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for this word that you have written for us. Paul speaks about Isaiah and he says, well, does the Holy Spirit say through prophet the, uh, Isaiah the prophet? And we say, well, did the Holy Spirit say through Luke to us, the book of Acts. Father, I am thankful to you uh, as we think about our task in this. I'm thankful to you for the men and women who are considering uh, seriously and in pursuit of a lifetime overseas carrying the gospel message. And I thank you for the generosity of this congregation that sends and sends and sends. Oh Lord, we do pray that as we think about those 10... uh, 5,000 miles away from us that you would help us to think about those five minutes away from us. Oh, Father, that, that we would be a congregation ever more faithful in passing the good message of Jesus um, around and out to all who are around us. Give us fresh eyes to see them and soft hearts towards their needs. You are very good to us. You have blessed us through your marvelous plans. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would respond with glad obedience. We pray these things in Christ's name together, saying, Amen.